Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar show brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Belt Racing Helmets USA. Have our guest, our friend, Mark Blundell. Ah, this was a lot of fun to capture. And at the very end, he mentioned just as we stopped, oh, by the way, uh, it's my birthday today. So happy birthday to our young man, Mr. Blundell. Boy, if you got a chance to watch him during the cart IndyCar era, this was a fighter. Man, this was a fighter. And if you happen to enjoy his motor racing stylings before he came to America, he was also a serious badass in Formula One in junior series prior to that and sports cars as well. So always a pleasure when we can catch up. And he has some great stories in here. I'm going to spin out one, maybe two into standalone written features on racer.com because they're just that good. How are you guys doing? How's, uh, how's the family? And I say that because as I mentioned every now and then you all really are like family. And I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how you all are doing, how you all might be getting through these tough times. I know that on the home front here, as many of you continue to ask on a daily basis, we're doing well. My wife is her usual incredible, incredible person. And uh, boy, I tell you, she is a uh, ongoing inspiration for resolve and fortitude. So doing well here, really hoping you all are family of fans and listeners of the silly podcast that I do, but also your family on the home front Genuinely hope you're doing well. And something that I extended in the request for questions on our Facebook page. If you guys got stuff to talk about, not just racing, but how you are doing, anything you might be looking for answers to, trying to hack this stay at home, shelter at home thing, please don't hesitate to throw in those questions. It's not as if I know all. It's more a a thinking of your questions might lead to answers from fellow listeners. And we even have one or two professionals who have said, hey, if there's anybody who needs to speak to someone, whether it's just a family therapist or whatever else, for some of us, these times are relatively easy. Because at least for my wife and I, we've been dealing with virus fighting prevention uh, sheltering at home by and large for whatever it is, seven, eight, nine months now. So this COVID-19 thing, it's not really a thing. Uh, but I know for many folks, this is a huge, huge adjustment in life. So just wanted to extend that offer yet again. If you got something to say, whether it's in a public format that we can throw out to the listeners, our extended family here to answer, or if it's a direct message of which I get many each day, don't hesitate to throw those in. And if you're curious, hey, maybe I would like to talk to somebody. It's also something where I know we have uh, some kind listeners who've offered to help using their education and expertise to your benefit. Beyond that, can mention that I've started a Driven series, interviewing a variety of folks, Mark being one of them, a variety of folks on their memories, participation in the movie, Uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera, all manner of stuff. I was hoping to get it done by the 19th anniversary 
which is coming up here on April 21st. I don't know if I'm going to get that done, but that does come into our conversation here at the very end with Mark. So let's get rolling with our man, Mark Blundell, here on the Week in IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Family, we have our man, Mark Blundell, joining us. Not the first time you've been on the podcast, mate, but first time we've had you on the Week in IndyCar. How is life in the UK? Uh, Marshall, life in the UK, I think, is very much like the rest of the world. Uh, lockdown is the key phrase. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I pray for everybody's safety. But at the, uh, the end of the day, yeah, we are very much uh, in a situation that is unprecedented. So um, what more can we do than uh, sit and hope? Well, let's get to some questions. Let's get to some fun and distraction and other good bits as we are doing just that, trying to give folks a little bit of a bridge to get through their days. Why don't we start, and we got a nice variety of questions here. Let's go recent from our pal Simon Rafi. He says, Mark, are you looking forward to being a team owner in the British Touring Car Championship? And he also asks, how soon before you'll be itching to get back behind the wheel? That was one of the delights in recent years, right? Hey, Mark's back racing full time. <laughs> okay, so um, I I do believe that I have officially retired. Uh. Um, I I do believe, but never say never, Marshall. You know that, especially to a, a racing driver. It's like uh, it's like a drug. It's a little bit addictive. So you know, but. As of today, I am retired. Um, the British Touring Car team, uh, I actually do not own the team, but I am a sporting director, and that has a number of roles attached to it. Uh, but we have quite a big commercial influence across the team now as well. So something that I did last year behind the wheel, something that interested me, and it is the premier motorsport platform in the uk so very happy to be involved i'm gonna stay current on managerial mark before we get into a lot of the fun and a back in the day stuff folks want to hear about this comes in from our pal darren dubois says mark do you still represent jordan king and if so any prospects on getting that young lad back to the indy 500 or indycar uh no we don't represent Jordan anymore. Um, and I think that is just something that was a, a mutual situation because at the end of the day, Jordan um, is very much focused on trying to get something which will support his, uh, his career in, in sports gushing. And as much as we'd both love to be back in America, because I think he did a damn good job and probably was very underrated with what he achieved. Agreed. Um, with Ed Carpenter, um, you know, the situation is tough and, um, and budgets are very difficult to achieve in this day and age. And, uh, you know, Jordan is, uh, is no different to that. It's been quite a tough, uh, situation to try and find funding, but, you know, he, he's a very, uh, a very capable and a, and a highly, uh, highly rated driver with his, uh, his results in Europe. And, um, and I do believe there was, uh, and still is, if it does happen, a great opportunity for his career to expand in the USA. I enjoyed having Jordan over here. 
was hoping to have him a little bit longer. Didn't really get a chance, though, to uh, dive in and ask about the whole uh, rich energy drink thing that went down uh, in May last year, which also affected his entry at the Indy 500. Uh, let's go to our pal Jameen Tuttle. says, Mark, as someone who raced in Formula One and IndyCar during the kart era, uh, very different eras for both. Just curious. Tell us about your era uh, of being a man in F1, a man in kart in the 90s versus what you see today in both series. He also asks, uh, what's worse dealing with uh, owners or drivers when you're representing a driver? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good question. Um, You know, listen, I think uh, our generation of drivers in, in champ car, I, I really do feel hand on heart. There was uh, some great guys there. I think the racing was incredibly close and uh, and and spectacular entertainment um, because you know we had nine hundred horsepower cars, no traction control, no power steering, and they were beasts of a car. They were animals and um, very very enjoyable. Uh, difficult to drive at the best of times, but as I say, I think the, the champ car era was was one of the best. Um, the guys today, I think it's an outstanding crop of drivers as well. I think there's some guys in there that even I raced against who are still there. And I still feel that, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a huge amount of ability and talent there. Sometimes it's not quite as, uh, closely fought, uh, than what I'd like to see, but saying that from a pure, uh, spectator's point of view, even from my side, when I sit in an armchair and watch TV, I would always watch an IndyCar race over a current Formula One race. Um, and that takes me on to where that is today. I truly believe that technology has sort of overtaken the skill set of the driver more than necessary. And I think the balance, you know, maybe it was 65-35 in terms of technology and driver input in a Formula One car in my generation. I think it's more like 80-20 now. Mm. Um and and I think that that really is uh, you know reflective on where we've got to as well. That for me, you know, putting an F one race on ninety percent of the time now, it's a predictable outcome. It's a predictable result. And for me, sport should never ever be predictable. Rather strange when we consider how other sports. Granted, I realize most of them are very basic stick and ball measures, but we think about how technology could intrude in many ways and yet those series i'm sorry those sports have done their best to make sure that a purity has been maintained and this isn't picking at formula one just in a general sense i'm not sure the world of motor racing has done enough thinking about what's necessary and important to keep the manufacturers and sponsors engaged versus what's the correct level to maintain the purity of sport so the proverbial computers aren't winning the races. Um, again, I don't know if we're, this is going to get better as technology seems to increase on a daily basis in our lives, but uh, just as a, a eternal question we should be asking ourselves, don't know if that gets posed as often as it should. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting topic, Marshall, and... Um We've seen technology come into the world of football, or as you would know in the U.S. soccer, 
uh, with what they call VAR, and um, you know, I, I think that's had a huge impact into the sport and and some you know outrage with some spectators, and also it, it's been quite costly from a fiscal point of view. So uh, it's not just motorsport. No. But, but you know, part two, just to answer that question as well, um, is it easier to deal with drivers or uh, manufacturers or team principals? I have to say, on a management point of view, 90% of the time it's easier to deal with drivers. Um, and that's probably because I still think like a driver and hopefully can relate to them. But uh, it's not always that easy to relate to a team boss. I think that's Mark just saying today's drivers are really dumb. No, no, no. Sorry. Hold on. Um, <laughs> sorry. What's the line about uh, comedy? A little bit of truth in all comedy? Sorry. Uh, Mark, let's go to JJ Gertler, and this is fun. I know the answer to this, but uh, we need to we need to get into this. Says Mark, just taking a stab here, but have there been any amusing times where you were confused for Martin Brundle, or vice versa? Uh, I seem to recall a uh, in Japan in particular, uh, y- your last names were fairly hard to pronounce, uh, leading to uh, I believe the Blundell brothers. Um, which happened, but if you could, and some Brabham comes to mind as well, but share some, uh, share some, some tales about this. Cause folks might not know that. Yes, indeed. You and dear Martin, uh, your last names brought you together more than probably you should have. Well, uh, we are very good friends. We're great buddies. Uh, actually had to start the business together, but we've been teammates in formula one on two occasions. Um, Okay, this is a true fact. Uh, Brabham, 1991, we were flying from Japan to Australia for the last Grand Prix. If you take M. Brundle and M. Blundell and you use Japanese characters, they basically spell the same name because R and L in Japanese is the same character. Uh, (laughs) The bonus with that is that when you are a young driver and you're flying in economy, uh, you're back in coach and uh, your your superstar teammate is flying first class. So you arrive at the airport before him to check in and you get handed the seat 1C and you think, marvellous, they've recognised you as a Formula 1 driver and you've been upgraded. Um, you get onto 1C and you have your first sip of champagne on your way to the next Grand Prix and you see your teammate very red-faced and confused in the doorway asking the stewardesses in his best Japanese accent to remove me from the seat because it belongs to him. And um, that's a true story. And believe me, um, I stayed in that seat for nine hours all the way to Australia and Martin stayed in my seat, which is like 69 F or something. So, you know, uh, he wasn't the best pleased. (laughs) Good man. No, that uh, you should fight every step of the way. No, no, that's an imposter. Please remove him from the plane. Who is that? That old man, that old shriveled man. But that had to be, yeah. I'm guessing that had to be fun. I don't know if, if that's the right word to use, Mark, but uh, yeah, there, there have been some interesting periods where uh, the two of you as Brits with similar last names, uh, the same initial starting your first name. I mean, this was a bit of a thing in F1 for a while. Is it something you played up or just enjoyed? Yeah, we, we, we've had a huge amount of enjoyment with it. And um we did seven years of uh, television uh, in, in the UK for Formula One together as well. So, you know, a lot of people know us as the, the Brondell brothers or the, uh, you know, the, 
the, the, the Blondell twins. So it, it, it's a big partnership there and we've enjoyed it immensely. But, you know, at the end of the day, I have a huge amount of respect for Martin as an individual and a racing driver and, uh, and he's a true friend. So um, it's all in jest. Well, I'm glad you take pity on that guy, I tell you. No, love, absolutely love him <laughs> as well. Uh, here's a fun one from Evan Kramer. We've got a couple here, also Ian Keyworth. Uh, Evan says, Mark, you've raced in some of the most amazing circuits in the world with your stints at F1 and most recently in BTCC. It says, in general, how do the, uh, the British circuits compare to the ones in the U.S.? Also, I was curious if you have any favorites. Uh, you know, the UK circuits, there's a few of them around that are actually quite uh, challenging and, and a little bit different to what I feel I've ever been on in America. So, for example, somewhere like Froxton mm. is quite unique in its own right. Um, but then we would go somewhere like Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuit, which in several areas would remind me of something like Elkhart Lake. And I would say... Elkhart Lake and Laguna Seca were my two best U.S. circuits. I think they were great tracks. Um, and if you, if you put me back in the U.K., and I'd have to go with Silverstone and Brands Hatch as being my, uh, my all-time favorites on that side of things. But um, if, you, if you want to put me on a global level, I would be probably like 95% of every Formula 1 driver and say Spa-Francorchamps in Belgium as being the ultimate circuit. And not to blow smoke up your backside here, Mark, but one of the things that I know endeared you to us when you came over, very much an elbows out driver, right? You want to get your shoulders, you know, you want to get your forearms and fists into that steering wheel. That was the character behind your driving. So in mentioning a spa in Elkhart Lake, the brand's indie circuit, Jesus, uh, I mean, these are territories that seem to just fit your character as a driver. Was that a natural thing? Was that just natural to you in, in rising to these holy crap, flowing speed commitment type circuits? Or is that something that just developed over time? Do you, you know something, Marshall? My, uh, I never did karting. I didn't do go-karts. Um, I went straight into Formula Ford 1600 is my first former motorsport. But what I did before that was, was schoolboy level motocross. So I came off of a, of being a top 36 schoolboy rider in the UK in motocross. And, and when you do that sport, you go elbow to elbow on a start line with 35 other guys and you go into the first term. And if you've ever been in to turn one and you've fallen off and you've had everybody run over you, you kind of get elbows out really quickly. You know, you, you need to get stuck in. And I took that same frame of mind into motor racing. And, you know, in my early career, I think I was quite well known for going into a corner with somebody and uh, not coming out the other side. Um, but a lot of that was done purely on psychology because uh, I knew full well that next race, no one was going to go down the side of me because they didn't. And, and that was the way that I kind of took my racing. And it, it carried all the way through. Not to say that I did it in a dangerous way. I just made sure that I did it in a committed way. Um, okay, now and again it didn't work and it kind of backfired. Now and again you have to sort something out off the track and uh, in the paddock. But, you know, that's another story. Mm. 
fun. Good fun. Let's go to... Let's go to Closing Bell. We're going to get into uh, some cart and IndyCar fun here and a few other items as well. Uh, says, what was your first IndyCar driving experience like versus your first F1 experience? And I, I could be completely wrong, but my brain is remembering something on the McLaren testing side, possibly as uh, first F1 experience, but it could be wrong. But if you could share the tales of your first day in a cart IndyCar and your first day in a proper Formula One car. Actually, my first experience of a Formula One car was when I was a test driver at Williams Grand Prix. And, uh, you know, it, it was not glamorous. It was actually on an airfield doing straight line testing. That was the first uh, the first time I got inside a Formula One car. What, and it was what at year place, would that have been? That, that was 1989. So, uh, 1989, I was there and I was then, uh, put inside an F1 car. We did straight line testing where at that stage we do a lot of aerodynamic, uh, evaluation that would correlate to the wind tunnels back then. And, um, it was a pretty, uh, thank, thankless task in a way. You just literally run up and down up to about 150 miles an hour and, uh, did it for, you know, several hours. But for somebody who'd never been in an F1 car, it was a huge amount of fun. That Renault V10 uh, course, singing as well. <clears throat> oh yeah, uh, exactly that. And you know, it was the it was the foundation of me to then get signed on a multi year contract at Williams, um, where I I went on to do a, a good job for the guys, and and actually then got my opportunity to go to uh, Brabham in 1991. My problem is that I should have stayed at Williams because I probably would have been where Damon Hill was because he took over my job and ended up being world champion. Mm. But you know, I'm. I'm not bitter, Marshall, not one bit, you know. Whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy and a great friend. And uh, and it was actually me who was already doing management, and I didn't know it because I gave him the tip-off to tell him that I was leaving Williams to go to Brabham and uh, he should ring Frank Williams and get himself in there before anybody else does. <laughs> he, never did, he never did pay me, you know. He never gave me a commission on that deal. Notorious. We see. He says he's British. We think we suspect he's Scottish, but that's okay. That's that is okay. Uh, how brilliant is that? And that might be a whole other uh, a whole other episode about uh, boy, some beautiful FW uh, chassis that you helped develop as well. What about on the uh, the IndyCar side? You, you know, I'm trying to think. I, I'm struggling to think when I had my first uh, IndyCar test. Um, I believe it was at Firebird in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, wow. Well, uh, if you want to talk about nothing and thankless F1 testing running up and down an airstrip, you, you want to get humbled <laughs> quickly? Hey, got this new career in America, Mark. Great. Where are we going? Classic track, Indianapolis. No, we're going to Firebird, buddy. We're going, and you're going to get bit by a scorpion while you're there, too. <laughs> well, I, I ended up having a house there for 17 years, so they did make an impression on me, Marshall, but there you go. <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure that was my first test. And, uh, yeah, um, and it, it one of those circuits as well that got that, uh, that desert dust across it and grip levels were uh, what we would call fluctuating throughout the day. But there you go. Um, but, yeah, 
you know, different animals to drive. A Formula One car is probably one of the most precise pieces of machinery you ever get to sit in. Uh, an Indy car is a, is a little bit more agricultural. I don't say it's not refined by any means, but just uh, not quite as refined as an F1 car. So um, quite different cars to drive in their own right. Another uh, listener, Flat Out Jim 79, is curious about how the PacWest relationship came together and was curious if you had offers from any other IndyCar teams you were weighing at the time uh, when considering the shift from F1 to the States. So I had just done the, the year of 1995 with McLaren, and I already knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay there because David Coulthard had been signed previously, actually at the end of 94, I believe. Um, I was on my way to stay in F1 with the Sauber team. And uh, during the period um, of the off-season, a guy called uh, Dieter Mateschitz turned up and bought into Sauber. And Dieter Mateschitz is, uh, is the Red Bull guy. So he bought into Sauber. And one of the conditions of his investment was that he got to choose uh, a race driver. And the conditions were that he had to have won a Grand Prix. And the only guy that was sitting without a job at that time with, uh, with a Grand Prix win under his belt was a guy called Johnny Herbert. So Johnny ended up getting the Sauber seat. Uh, I got a little bit ticked off about Formula One and uh, a bit disheartened. And off the back of my McLaren season with Mercedes-Benz, it was their debut year back in F1 again, they were uh, very gracious and very thankful for the job that I'd done and offered me a Mercedes engine deal to take to America. Mm. So I had an engine deal from Mercedes and I had some contacts in America and actually via Reynard, the manufacturer, there was a discussion that got struck with Bruce McCaw uh, about me becoming uh, a driver for his PacWest team. And um, I actually went on my honeymoon in the USA to Colorado um, and then flew up from there to meet Bruce and uh, we got a deal struck and as you'll probably know we started with Cosworth but in that following season in 97 we switched to Mercedes-Benz engines because that was all part of the program from when I turned up so um, yeah happy days a lot of uh, fond memories and uh, you know still reflect on some of those today bit of a sidebar here Maybe this is something I need to write about or do a a podcast series on. I don't know if folks fully appreciated then, and especially now, how integral Renard, I mean, Adrian Renard to a degree, but Rick Gorn in particular, played as a conduit for drivers coming from the UK or wherever else. And this really was a, a rich era where on the chassis supplier side, there was really a strong effort to try and recruit talent or make introductions, smooth the path somehow. So really, I would say a very cool time in a bit of maybe a non-traditional method that there were folks actively working to try and you know, make new opportunities for good folks like you in the U.S. I, I think that's a very valid point. Marshall, and, and I think, you know, Rick still operates in that driver management sector even today. Um, but, you know, I had a relationship with Adrian Reynard and Rick Gorn uh, and winning the 19, 
86 European Formula Ford season for them in a Reynard in Formula Ford 2000. And, uh, you know, that stood me in good stead because even doing what I was doing in Formula One, um, you still need relationships. And, and it was a case of those guys being supportive and saying, look, you know, USA, we've got a guy that's coming out of F1 and we know him from old and um, he would be a great fit for somebody. And uh, fortunately, Bruce McCaw and the Packers team took on board that notion. And, uh, the rest is history, as they say. Friend of mine, Jaime Macias, sent in a question asking, Mark, how did or was there a way your motocross experience uh, ended up helping you for oval racing when you got to kart? You know, uh, I, a lot of people don't quite understand, but there's a huge amount of balance that is required when you drive a racing car. And it sounds kind of crazy, but you know, you, you may see these guys when they tip their head into a corner. Um, it, it really is a relevant part of, uh, of driving a car quickly. And, and that comes also when you come off of a bike. So, you know, road racing bike or a motocross bike, uh, you stick yourself into a berm and you go through a corner. It's all the same. So, yeah, I mean, there's some synergies there. There's some, some aspects that uh, overlapped. But, you know, I have to say, racing career-wise over sort of 30-odd years, the two biggest difficulties I've ever had with one last year trying to drive a front-wheel drive racing car, which was nigh on impossible for me mm. because my style didn't work. But the other thing was actually to learn oval racing. And I have the utmost respect for these guys who understand how to work a car on an oval. Um, I was quite lucky. I had a very good friend in a guy called Ari Landyke. He was very supportive and helpful. Good old Harry and, Lunatic, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, two times. And... Uh, he fast-tracked me with some support and help on that side. But, you know, any of the guys in Europe who look at oval racing in America and, and don't give it respect uh, are not actually giving the sport respect in, in general because, you know, until you've actually done it, you have no idea. And it's an incredibly difficult discipline and one that I found uh, quite difficult. But for sure... On the, the big ovals especially, I kind of got the hang of it. And I think I did six 500-mile races, one, one of them come second, and I think we still finished in the top six and the three others out of the six. Um, so my, my biggest regret is that I never got to do the Indianapolis 500 because I always felt that I would have an opportunity to do something good there because I always had good results on 500-mile races. This maybe piggybacks a bit on a question from uh, Motorsport Notes. Um Asks about, Mark, did you ever regret not leaving F1 a bit sooner uh, given the kart success and the oval success you achieved in North America? And I know it's always a hard question, but to your point, boy, uh, given a few, more, uh, a few more years or a slightly earlier start, I too wonder how many wins, uh, Indy 500 possibly. It seems like there was more for the taking. Uh, if we could go back in time, boy curious about a uh, earlier 90s cart start for you well you know it's always difficult to reflect and, and and look back and ask yourself what shoulda and coulda uh but i just you know i had to do what i could do whenever my career took a change of direction and um i have regrets about not being able to stay in formula one longer i do have regrets about not being able to do indycar for longer um you know, different generations, different times, maybe things you think about, you could have done a better job. But 
Yeah, you know, I, I still feel that IndyCar racing is some of the best racing ever in my career. Um, and I still to this date think that it's some of the best motorsport in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it was like going back to the beginning of my career and, and racing Formula 4 1600, but at 250 miles an hour. And, and that for me is where it's at. That's, uh, you know, as, as gladiators at their best. Knobbly tires, throwing wheel weights. I love the idea of 250 mile an hour. <laughs> Formula Fords. It's got an interesting one here from Matthew Ponto. It says, Mark, did you have any doubts about racing on ovals after your huge crash at Rio in 1996? And I guess this, this brings up also an era mark where huge oval crash today in an Indy car, not as if it's any less violent, but we know the safety measures that have been implemented since 96. A big oval shunt in the mid-90s, cart era with crazy power, yet not all the safety measures. It was more like an airplane crash. Uh, share some thoughts about this and also the recovery efforts, because this was not uh, a, a short or easy thing for you to work through. Well, it, it was kind of tough because I'd only just joined IndyCar uh, very early on in the season in 96. And... You know, that whole accident came about, Marshall, from, from a, a technical failure. Um, the, the brake hub uh, exploded, and I lost brakes on the approach to the last corner. Um, I think the, the approach speed was still uh, 198 miles an hour when I first hit the brake pedal because I had that data. But there was then, at that point, no brakes going you know forward. So the pedal had gone to the bulkhead. Um, always the biggest fear for a race driver, no brakes or a stuck throttle. And um, at that point, my sort of self-preservation mechanism kicked in and I, I kind of was looking at how I'm going to get out of this. And my first thought was to try and hit my teammate because he was already into the corner. And I thought if I could hit him, I'll take some energy out of the uh, the car and, and uh, at the same time, I won't hit concrete at the speed that I'm traveling at. And that was the problem with that circuit at Rio. It wasn't a true oval, so the, the impact angle was severe, and it was concrete. There was no tires, no safety barrier. Uh, regretfully for me at that stage, I missed Maurizio Guzman, which was favorable for him, because I think if I'd have hit him, it would have been a huge mess, but I tried. Um, I bent the steering wheel in half in trying to do that. Uh, we struck the wall, and the impact was still at uh, 190 odd miles an hour impact, and 122 g was recorded. Jesus. Um, and, and to this day, I think it's still up there in ESPN's top 10 crashes. I think it's got some views on YouTube, you know, very significant ones. But um, it's one of those things you look at it and you go, like, is that speeded up? Oh no, it's real time. That's uh, that's that's unbelievable. So even today, I watch it now and again, and it, it still horrifies me. But the, the, the remarkable thing is, I never got knocked out. I, I never was unconscious. I, I remember every single thing. And the the biggest thing that stays with me, even to this date, is the noise, the impact uh, sound, and then trying to actually get myself out of the car, and then falling over, understanding that some bones are broken, several other injuries. But the um, the other thing people don't realize is that I, I did actually tell the, the safety team when I got out that I had brake failure. I wanted to make sure that my team were fully aware and uh, get that message back to my teammate. And on the restart of that race, some 10 laps in, 
Maurizio Gugerman's brakes also fouled exactly the same way. But he was only lucky because he'd got brake checked and uh, checked up on the straight by Emerson Fittipaldi. And Big Mo had to then ride it up to the top of the wall and skim all the way around the uh, the outside to slow him down. So very fortunate. But um, yeah, I always, always have that in the back of my mind. I was a considerate teammate, which is uh, few and far between. <laughs> but you, you raise a great point, Mark, with this being new adventure, new career arc. Crashing on an oval is something you would expect from an oval rookie. And this was just a case where you were wanting to make it clear with your new team that this was not just brain fade or incompetence. Uh, This actually happened as a result of something unrelated to your driving efforts. I mean, that again, it might sound like an odd thing for you to mention to the safety team and to try and get clear. But there is also, I mean, that... Again, you've always been a pretty smart guy. Uh, I appreciate the fact that in this moment, broken bones and all, massive crash, you had the presence of mind to try and let the team know, hey, don't write me off. This wasn't just me acting a fool behind the steering wheel. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it, and it really was also to just try and give uh, the team a heads up on guys. You know, it, it later turned out that the part on the car had not been stress tested, crack tested, and, uh, it, it failed. It failed. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't actually a rain on part. It was manufactured from a third party. So, you know, it, it had a failure. Uh, and consequently, um, you know, I, I had some big injuries attached to that, but yeah, the comeback from that Marshall is that when you're in that situation, you know, you're out, uh, you've got some, you know, significant injuries and you get replaced. And uh, such is the pressures on a driver at that level that you need to try and get back in your car again. And, uh, you know, I was away for seven weeks. And seven weeks later after that incident, I was back in a race car. Um, And that was done probably too early, if I'm truthful. You know, looking back, I probably got in it too early. But I had to. The pressures were on to make sure I got my seat back. And the first time I got back in a racing car, believe it or not, was to go and test at Michigan. And I had never been on a super speedway. Um, We're going to find out what you're made of there, right? I mean, if you want to talk about mental fortitude, that's a great way to find out if if a guy's ready. Good Lord. Exactly that. You know, you you turn up into into America and you start to do IndyCar. You have this humongous crash. And then the guys say, you know what? uh, We're going to go back. And the first track you're going to is a super speedway. And I get back in the car. I go out. I scare myself silly and I come back in and I say, guys, there's something wrong with the car. And they look at me like I'm an alien from outer space. They go, well, you're only doing an average of 195, 200 miles an hour. I'm like, right. They said, well, you need to be averaging 215, 220 to make these things work. So, uh, okay, I'm not really even in the performance envelope of the car. So, you know what I did? I, I got out the car and you can ask the team members who were there in the day and I left the circuit. I got in my rental car. I, I left the track. I took a couple of hours out, uh, had a little bit of an emotional sort of outburst, came back to the circuit that day and said, guys, I'm ready. Let's not talk about the incident anymore. Let's just get on and go forward. And I locked it away. And, uh, and before the end of that day, I was going around at 220 miles an hour average and uh, things were looking good. And, and that's where we finished it and we ended it. That's fascinating, Mark, because it is such a, 
real thing to process, right? We might think of the star athlete injured themselves, coming back, doing something heroic. I mean, that's the Hollywood script. The reality is this thing just tried to kill me at just below 200 miles an hour. I have bones snapped, all the things that we've discussed. I'm going to spend a couple months on the sidelines for you, actually, a fairly brief period. Fears of potentially losing your new job and getting back into a car at a place that is about as fast as an IndyCar can go. Curious what the team was thinking, because if we're talking about placing mental stress on somebody, boy, uh, that's Michigan International Speedway is a place to do it. But just that inner reckoning you had to have with yourself, and that's maybe a side of the sport we don't delve into enough, which is you aren't a superhero. You aren't made of just these magical powers that can make you forget history. This is something where you had to have that conversation with yourself to break through a threshold in returning to your full self. I mean, that's, there's a lot to that. I think that's a side of the sport that a lot of times gets uh, very little recognition. And, um, you know, it sometimes gets taken for granted. But, you know, there's, uh, there's emotion that runs through a racing driver as much as there is any other sports person. And, uh, you know, at times that can uh, get the better of you and, and as a, an output on, on what you're doing inside the cockpit of the race car. So, yeah. Mental uh, strength is uh, is no different from whether you're sitting down uh, in a race seat or whether you're running around the circuit or whatever the case may be. It's all the same. Let's get to the last couple of questions here, Mark, and then we're going to hit the uh, the pause button and record uh, something special uh, we'll tell folks about in a moment. Uh, let's go to Jamie Carr. It says, Mark, can you talk us through that last lap at Portland? Uh, Jamie says, my first race other than the Indy 500 was Cleveland a few weeks later. It says, I was able to meet you at that race. Uh, I think you were still smiling before I mentioned the Portland win. Boy, you, man, you've done some pretty iconic things in your career. Uh, between pole at Lamar with a motor that was pretending to be a drag racing engine to uh, the, this infamous Portland last lap. And we'll get to Lamar uh, victory uh, in the next question. But for folks who maybe don't know, the uh, the last lap Portland story. Can you share that with us? Oh, I mean, uh, you know, we, we'd just come off the back of losing out on a on a win at Detroit, where we run out of fuel. I think two corners from the end of the tr- the uh, the race distance, um, and things have been building momentum in terms of performance to go and get that that debut win. But um, Portland, I, I have to say, Marshall kind of played into my hands because. I was always uh, and, and always have been for some reason. And, and I think some of this comes from even my early days in motocross on two wheels. When you have to pick a line, you have to pick what's good in terms of grip and terrain. And you have to always be evaluating the, the surface and the circuit grip in front of you. And, and in the wet conditions, I've always had a lot of success. And that transitional period of coming from, you know, wets to slicks and then getting that, that heat build up and getting those car, cars working on tires, what are cold, I've always sort of excelled in. And, and that really was the, the Portland race. That was where we, we chose the right time to commit to going on to slicks. We 
hung it out in areas where we had a little bit more that we could uh, have in self-belief and, and a car that worked for us. And we chipped away on that last lap to pick them off to, um, you know, to eventually just, just get to the finish line by, I can't even think what it is, like 0.27 seconds or something. It, it was the closest finish in the history of kart racing. Yeah, I so think he got surpassed on a on an oval race in, in IndyCar after that in IRL, but definitely on a road course or something, I think it was the closest. Yeah, so we've got this 1997 Portland G.I. Joe's Grand Prix event. Got you in these intermediate conditions, as you mentioned. Got Gilles de Ferrin uh, scrapping hard, thinking that he's going to win. Heck, uh, we even have good old Raul Boisel thinking he might be in the frame for something. This was, for those who weren't fortunate to watch it live or remember the tale, this was about as thrilling a finish as we had seen in quite a while. Do you, I know your job is to drive the vehicle and win the race, which was your first kart IndyCar win, but do you recall feeling the closeness of it? Because I know sometimes drivers say, I realized the person was right next to me. I was focused down the road, but do you recall the sensation of this being as close as it was as you're reaching the finish line? Yeah, I, I do because you know if you if you look at those last laps, um, you know I was hanging off the back of everybody in front of me uh, and, and and hassling them quite severely to get by, and having to show my nose in areas because there was still a lot of damp surface. So you know, yes, I fully understood. You know, where Gilles was, I knew I had to get that, that last little bit of traction off the last corner and out dragging down the straight. And I knew that Raul Bazell was coming up thick and fast as well. Um, I don't know. There's a possibility that maybe Raul would have gone on to win that race if it had been a few more laps. In saying that, I think when we were getting where we were on slicks because Gilles was still on wets, we would have probably been okay as well. But, you know, I do remember Gilles holding his hand up and uh, punching his fist in the air. Um, <laughs> Poor Gilles. and you know, I, I know that I actually didn't, uh, I didn't hear anything on the radio for quite some time because my team was so happy and so elated that they'd had the, their first win that they forgot to tell me the driver that I'd actually won the race. <laughs> so, um, you know, <laughs> I, I actually saw the win at the top of the, uh, the uh, the tower there, you know, like the the column that had all the results on it, the digital column there. That's where I saw my race number at the top. But then eventually, one of the guys, I think it may have been, it may have been even Ziggy Harkus by memory, that came across the radio, or maybe Daryl, my, my mechanic, and said, you know, you, you've won the race, buddy. You've won the race. And uh, yeah, but it wasn't until two or three corners after the the, the checkered flag. I just always thought it was so nice. It just spoke to. What a, a beautiful and warm human being Gilles de Ferrin is. That he was raising his fist, pumping it in the air, celebrating your victory. Right? That's how we'll go ahead and decide <laughs> to treat that. Because we certainly wouldn't want to say, boy, Gilles, you might have gotten that one a little uh, premature, pal. Oh, Lord. How fun. Well, speaking of fun, let's shift to uh, another topic that is one that I love from your career. And this comes in from Rick McComer. Says hi, Mark. I really enjoyed watching you during the kart days. But can you reflect on what it was like driving the amazing Peugeot 905 and your Le Mans win in 1992? So another glorious V10 powered machine, the 905 Evo 1B. Yourself, 
your man Derek Warwick, Yannick Dalmas. I mean, this was, if we're talking peak prototype technology speed, you name it. I mean, this this Peugeot is one of two or three or four that stand out as all-time greats. What was it like driving that, and can you share that 92 Le Mans experience with us? Uh, you know, that, that that car then in that generation was, was basically a Formula One car with a uh, with a big body on it. Um, that was a level of technology, and the performance was incredible. Um, that year, 1992, I was actually the test driver and reserve driver at McLaren in Formula One for Senna and Berger. And um, I'm probably one of the only drivers who can say they've had 100% success record in one season because I only did one race and won it. So <laughs> that was good. But, um, but, you know, the opportunity came about because Peugeot and McLaren had already entered into a relationship to go into Formula One in 1993. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, uh, I was asked by uh, Jean Todd at the time, he was running Peugeot, um, you know, would I would I look to do Le Mans uh, because he'd seen my sports car stuff, and uh, and McLaren were uh, very happy in releasing me to go and do that. So, you know, I, I have to say it was a fantastic experience working with the guys. It was great to work with somebody like Derek Warwick, who I looked up to as a young British driver. Yannick Dalmas was uh, an incredible uh, gentleman and fantastic driver in his own right, and. The race was a tough one. The conditions were uh, were hugely difficult. Uh, a lot of rain and uh, and fog throughout the the dark hours. And for me, I, I'd say the highlight of that race was standing on the uh, the winners' podium mm. and having uh, fifty, sixty thousand Union Jacks that were underneath the the, the gantry there in the pit lane. Um, something that will never ever be forgotten. And the the, the actual camaraderie of winning Le Mans is something quite unique because it's not just about 24 hours. It's normally a six or seven month program where there's a huge bond that's been built between drivers, teammates, um, and, and personnel. And, you know, to, to achieve that race and to be somewhere at the end of 24 hours of, of then, even then a a more or less a sprint race is something quite uh, unique. Another thing that stands out from this mark that I'd be interested to hear so obviously you'd set pole a few years earlier, the famous uh, stuck wastegate story with the Nissan. Uh, by just 1992, prototype development had just exploded. So beyond having a missile of a vehicle with great power, would say cornering capabilities certainly came up uh, massively as well. No, we're talking 92 where the, uh, the Mulsanne chicanes had come in. So we're not talking being able to go straight forever and achieve 9 million miles an hour, but nonetheless, tell me a little bit about the physicality of having to drive this car, sharing it obviously across 24 hours, but I'm guessing the car put you through a pretty good workout. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it did because it, as I say, it was very much like a Grand Prix car. Uh, even the cockpit and the confinement was small, like a Formula One car. It was a it was a very tough car physically because it had huge downforce levels, and that was the difference from that era that I'd done the pole at with Nissan. You know, we'd only just come into having carbon brakes and in sports car racing, and by '92 they were very refined. 
and very much uh, in, in, in keeping with the levels of performance of F1. And at the same time, by then, you know, the high downforce, the, the, the blown underwings, they weren't quite as quick in a straight line. I mean, the Nissan pole lap, we still did 238 miles an hour with the Mulsanne chicanes in. The Persia, I think we were running at something like 220, 222. But the cornering speeds, the braking capability of the Peugeot was uh, was incredible. And um, yeah, it, it was basically, you know, it was like doing several Grand Prix distances wrapped up in one. And my biggest, biggest ever worry through that race was failing to find the windscreen wiper switch in the right location and actually switching the engine off of the car <laughs> during the race. And... And, and 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 never have I fumbled so much in my life so quickly to try and find that ignition switch back again, and then receiving a radio call to ask me, you know, what the hell had been going on, and I and I can't even remember the excuse, but I'm sure it wasn't plausible at the time because they could see that the engine had turned itself off. So, uh, you know, these are the little things that happen, and um, we can only reflect on them when we're in our older age. To, uh, to to talk about it now with with a little bit of laughter attached, but it could have been quite costly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you also had a polite word on whomever did the cockpit uh, button engage layout. Maybe these are items that you separate. Uh, maybe you isolate the ignition <laughs> a wee bit. Just a suggestion here from the guy who mistakenly turned off the car during the 24 hours of Le Mans while trying to get the windscreen wipers going. Oh, that is brilliant. All right, two more questions for you here, sir. Uh, this comes in from Robbie Bergren, who it looks like the two of you have connected in the past on social media. He says, Mark, I asked you on Twitter a few months ago about why the Pac West team fell from its strong position in 97, and you said there were many reasons. So he's just curious, aside from Mercedes continuing to become a peakier power plant, could you expand on some of the reasons that took Pac West off of its race winning game? In 97. Um, you know what? I think at the end of the day, what happened there is that there was a little bit of too much expansion with the team. Uh, there was a, a, you know, Indy Lights was being put together on the side. There was a touring car, a bit, U.S. touring car as well, I believe. Yeah, there was a, there was several other programs that started for me, started to dilute a little bit the overall performance and. You know, and, and it's, teams are only as good as the, the, the people who make them internally. And, you know, it's only as good as what's being uh, produced with all the components put together. And Mercedes took a little bit of a, a little bit of a dip because a lot of resources then getting plowed into the Formula One program. Um, I do think, you know, at that time as well, I think Honda were doing great things with their engines and making great strides. But, as a team, I think it's just lost a bit of its focal point. And I think that was quite evident in, you know, we, we had a few little highlights of performance, but definitely our, our confidence and our, and our overall performance that we'd achieved in 97 was eroded quite quickly. And, and as I say, sometimes things happen, for a reason and it's not until you look back at them that you can actually uh have a little bit more understanding of, of the reasons why at that time gonna go to robbie once again he was going to help us say farewell to this episode but pivot us to a separate recording 
he's talking about the movie Driven. And he says, as a huge fan of PacWest Racing, I've got to ask, what are the chances of Mark starting his own IndyCar team and having his first driver signing be the great Jimmy Bly? What do you think, mate? You're going to hire your uh, driven <laughs> doppelganger to be your driver when we get to uh, Blundell Motorsports going well, here? I, I think not. I think not. Oh man! Uh, you, <laughs> well, listen. I, I, uh, I, I would love to have my own IndyCar team. I'd love to be back in the USA again and competing, even if it was as a team owner. But uh, if, if I'm really honest, I don't think Jimmy Bly would be the top of my list. He may be okay <laughs> going down the runway for modelling, but um, as racing drivers go, no, he just he didn't quite. Didn't quite make it, you know? Oh, just one of the sad stories. The kid had so much potential, and he uh, <laughs> he flamed out, sadly. And yes, uh, Robbie, we're, uh, we're actually, we got a couple of driven questions for you, but we're going to save those, hold those, because we're going to say thank you to Mark for making some time here for our Week in IndyCar show brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com at Bell Racing Helmets USA. Now we're going to record a little something about Mark's memories of the movie Driven for a special series I'm putting together here that'll be due out at some point in time in the future. Mark, thanks again for uh, visiting with us and telling some great, great stories. That was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Mark. He is just one of the good, good guys on top of being one of the outrageous talents in the sport this is your first time listening to what we do here. Pay a visit to marshallpruittpodcast.com. Got almost 800 episodes waiting for you there. Fairly extensive back catalog. We are raging towards 5 million downloads. So that's a pretty fun thing that I'm looking forward to here in the next month or two or three. We also have every method of subscribing that I think you might enjoy. So Thanks again for listening. Got another one coming up here in a day or two with Scott McLaughlin from Team Penske. And I've got your listener Q&A to knock out here, hopefully a little bit later today on Wednesday the 8th, once I am done with all of my client work. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Thank you for listening.